From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. Nicotine vapes in Australia were always illegal, but millions of these products were still being imported and used every year by the public. But a recent change by the TGA means that individuals wanting to legally obtain vaping products in Australia will have to pay a visit to the GP, prove they need vapes to quit smoking cigarettes and get a script. It's opened up a minefield for doctors who now might be faced with dozens of patients seeking repeat scripts, as well as pride open a larger can of worms about whether this policy change will actually have any meaningful impact on e-cigarette and cigarette smoking rates. This episode, we welcome back TMR reporter Holly Payne to talk about the latest changing in vaping laws and what it all means. Hi, Holly. Hi, Francine. Thanks for having me back. Anytime. So I guess you're here to help us see through this smoke screen. <laughs> uh, so the TGA has changed some laws recently around vaping. What does that look like? So yeah, nicotine vapes were always illegal and selling them has always been illegal and that hasn't changed. But there was this weird loophole where people could import whatever they wanted under a personal importation scheme, so long as it was in a quantity which was only suitable for personal use. And that's the part which has changed. So now people need a prescription from an Australian doctor to import nicotine vapes for personal use. They have to like send their script to the manufacturer who sticks it on the box that gets them sent to Australia, which is pretty wild. And the type of vape which people are allowed to import has also changed. So the e-liquid inside it has to meet a minimum standard set by the TGA in regards to nicotine levels and ingredients. And that's the first time that any minimum standards have been set, which is also kind of wild to think about. And so the patient has to import the vapes themselves. I'm imagining that they can no longer, like they used to just walk into a tobacconist and buy these illegally imported vapes, but they were very readily available up until quite recently over the counter. Yeah, so that's where it's kind of unclear. So one of the really weird things about the new TGA rule is that they announced it a year ago, they set up three pathways through which people can access e-cigarettes, and then they haven't really done much to ensure that two of the pathways can actually be used. So it kind of leaves, once you have your prescription in your hand, you can go online and find a TGA-compliant e-cigarette manufacturer in another country and do your direct importing, the same as you might have been doing before. Or if your doctor happens to be an approved prescriber of smoking cessation nicotine, which is a separate thing on the TGA that they have to apply to be, you can then take your script to a community pharmacy and purchase one there. And the weird part is that the TGA has never approved any vaping liquids, and so for a pharmacy to stock it, they would essentially have to act as the product sponsor and import it themselves, which I'm not sure if it's a common practice for pharmacies to do that for things which haven't been registered in Australia yet, but it does seem pretty risky considering, like on the pharmacy side of things, considering that the TGA standard is pretty new and vaping manufacturers may or may not be complying with that yet. So in most cases, for the time being, it seems like people will just import privately. And at least that's what I heard from Dr. Brad McKay, a GP who signed up to be an authorized prescriber. And as for 
that the legal trade, it might actually not be affected. And so what does the TGA change actually look like? It's pretty basic. Uh, It's called the TGO 110, which is pretty easy to remember. And it has four main points. Products need to have a nicotine concentration of less than 100 micrograms per milliliter. They need to be labelled with ingredients, have child-resistant packaging, and not contain prohibited ingredients like diethylene glycol, which is used in antifreeze. It's a pretty basic list of prohibited ingredients, and that's also interesting in and of itself, given so many of the vapes are, which are really popular are the flavoured ones. And I spoke to a researcher who had been looking at non-nicotine flavoured vapes, and he was saying that lots of the additives which are used in food, people are using those to manufacture flavourings vapes. But the difference is that they might be safe in a food to ingest, but the safety profile is completely different for if it's inhaled into the airwaves. So that's kind of interesting that the TGA hasn't made a move to crack down on which flavours can be imported yet as well. And given that this market has been unregulated for so long, who will be in charge of actually applying that logic of working out whether products will meet those minimum standards that the TGA has put out, such as, you know, the labelling of all ingredients, making sure that there aren't any additional toxic additives? Is that the consumer, once they have the script, they have to apply it in that way, according to the TGA? Or does the doctor writing the script need to ensure that it will be used for products that meet that TGA minimum standard? It looks like it falls on the patient. Now, the TGA does advise that clinicians who are prescribing e-cigarettes ring up the manufacturer or send an email checking that they're TGO 110 compliant. Um, But I think, from what I understand at least, it seems like the patient or whoever's doing the importing, so maybe in some cases the pharmacy, is the one who has the onus of responsibility to be checking. Dr. Mackay said, you know, GPs already have enough to do. Um, (laughs) It seems unlikely that many will be picking up the phone and calling New Zealand uh, vaping manufacturers to check. So um, it does seem like, from what I understand at least, the border force will just turn away non-compliant products and that kind of puts the loss into the patient or importing pharmacy. What does this mean for people who want access to vapes? And we know that not all people who smoke e-cigarettes were necessarily ever tobacco smokers as well. So what does that look like according to the experts that you've spoken to? Yeah, so kind of back to what you said before about the illegal trade. So with the way that everything is set up at the moment, Dr Mackay reckons that the new laws or regulations will probably affect the people who have legitimately been using e-cigarettes for smoking and have been importing it for themselves. So those are the people who are doing their own private importing already and they would have had to have been following the actual laws uh, in that they would only have been able to get a three-month supply for personal use. Um, And Dr Mackay said that this was the type of patient who had been Um, presenting to him in the months leading up to the regulations coming in and actually asking the questions and trying to work out how they can still bring in um, their vaping products. 
but meanwhile, people who are getting e-cigarettes illegally, so that's under the counter from convenience stores and tobacconists, will probably remain largely unaffected. I mean, there seems to be no added incentive for them to start following the rules now. And those places seem to have been perhaps illegally importing vapes anyway. And and I say that because if they're selling at a commercial quality, they weren't using that legal loophole to import three months supplies. So I, it's kind of unclear whether that trade will be affected much by the new TGA regulations. And do we know if people can still get flavoured vapes? Yeah, so this is a really interesting area as well. The TGA, like I said, doesn't say anything in its standard about flavours, but some doctors who I've spoken to have said that they've been encouraged to only prescribe tobacco-flavoured products, with the idea behind that being that tobacco is way less appealing for people than grape menthol, so (laughs) it'll discourage people from prolonged use. And interestingly, over in America, where nicotine vaping is banned in a similar way to Australia, the FDA just authorized their first e-cigarette for marketing and, I guess, over-the-counter use. And so that company, Hughes, apparently submitted a heap of applications for a range of products, but the FDA rejected all of them but one, and that was the tobacco-flavored vaping product. So... The FDA made it pretty clear at a press release accompanying that approval that they're well aware of the popularity of vaping in teens and they are only approving the tobacco flavor for that reason. And, you know, interestingly, the FDA mentioned that the company provided them with considerable evidence that vaping works as a smoking cessation tool. And that evidence has been a bit shaky. It's been questioned by a lot of smoking cessation experts. So it'll be really interesting to dig a bit deeper into that data. That's quite a recent release, so I'm not sure how much we can see of that yet. But Australia does tend to follow the FDA, from what I understand, with things like this. So I guess that's kind of a clue as to what the TGA might eventually do. And so on the question of prolonged use of these products, the stipulation as it stands is that you would be going to your doctor and requesting e-cigarette prescription as a means to quit. I think a lot of people who vape jokingly were saying, oh, well, how long can I pretend uh, to be quitting for to to get these prescriptions? (laughs) Did you get an answer to that question? How long can someone reasonably use vaping as a smoking cessation tool, either practically or in terms of getting sustained scripts under this new program? Yeah, so that really is the question of the hour, (laughs) Frankie. The um, RACGP has guidelines and those recommend that doctors make sure patients have tried other methods of smoking cessation, you know, your varenicline, your nicotine patches, and only prescribe nicotine vaping as that sort of second-line treatment. And they also recommend 12 months' use at most, given that we don't know much about the chemicals that are in vapes yet, so we can't be quite sure of the safety profile. The RACGP also recommends that you taper patients off of nicotine using vapes. So basically you could do that in practical terms by prescribing patients with a smaller and smaller dose concentration of nicotine. Um, And there are certain companies who produce vapes 
which actually can do that from what I understand. But there isn't anything hard and fast saying no, no one can get it after they've had four scripts or that. And from what I understand, you can provide patients with a three-month-long personal use script and that's kind of the longest they can go before they do have to come back and check in. And there's also been some temporary telehealth items that have been set up for this purpose, right? Yeah, so this is interesting in and of itself because I think there's four or six new items and you can use them for telehealth and they are exempt from the 12-month existing relationship rule which means that any doctor can use them for any patient without a requirement for them to have ever met face-to-face or to ever meet face-to-face. And this is a pretty interesting move because not many telehealth items have that exemption attached and that has caused a bit of a bit of um, commotion <laughs> in the space over the last uh, year or so. But... I did speak to the CEO of a telehealth group, which has a sub-brand, and that sub-brand is literally called Vaping Scripts. So it does specialize in vaping. And she said that the vape-specific clinic had been in the works for 18 months, and she believed that it benefited patients by having doctors who were kind of had specific knowledge of the vaping products and industry and what was available and what would past that TGO 110 compliance and what wouldn't. So that I thought was actually a, a pretty interesting take in and of itself. It's interesting that they have a vaping scripts brand because from what you're saying, the clinical guidance at the moment is actually that a number of other measures should be tried in clinical practice before the vaping script is written. Did they say anything specifically in their business model of providing in this space about how that might work? Yeah, so when I spoke to the CEO of the group that operates that uh, clinic, she said that patients had to present for a history-taking consult first and that it would only be prescribed if it fit the, I guess, requirements, like if patients fit the requirements of having tried and failed at other methods, etc. But Interestingly enough, the site's website, at least at the time I looked at it last week, it had like a one, two, three steps for obtaining a vaping script. But she does, she did insist that it wouldn't be prescribed to people who weren't suitable. So where does that leave us for these changes and what it means for doctors? Is there can doctors expect an influx of patients or do you think that the majority of people who are already illegally obtaining vapes will just continue to do so? It's so hard to tell given that obviously so much of the vape trade is already illegal. It's really hard to tell whether that will be affected but doctors probably can expect maybe a few patients to ask for vaping scripts now which it's pretty, um, it's pretty strange at the thought of doctors prescribing nicotine, but that's where we are. Holly, thank you. Thanks, Francine. The Tea Room is brought to you by the reporters at the Medical Republic. 
Production assistance, the music and artwork for the show is produced by Victoria Nelson. Catch you next time.